There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Jesse here. A quick message. What's going to happen for the next four weeks is that Omar Mualam will be filling in for me on the Monday show. I will still be hosting Shortcuts on Thursday, but in a minute you're going to hear Omar's first episode as our guest host. What you will hear from me are messages like this, taking care of business, telling you about our sponsors and our patrons. Speaking of which, this episode is brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. I'm going to tell you a bit more about that in a few minutes. For 50% off of your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and enter the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. The next quick message is that we had our first show. We kicked off the tour of Canada in support of the book at the Hot Docs Festival last week, and we had so much fun. 675 seats in that house. We packed the joint it was a blast. We had incredible support, and now we are taking that show on the road. This week, I'll be on Vancouver on May 11th. That's a Thursday. May 12th, Victoria. That's a Friday. And on Saturday, May 13th, I'll be in Calgary. Get your tickets at canadalandshow.com slash book tour. And of course, the exclusive sponsor of this international tour of Canada is Frank and Oak. I'll be signing books after each show. Come say Hello. This episode of Alberta Land has not been brought to you by Jesse Brown. My name's Omar Moal. I'm taking over for the next few episodes, which we're recording from sunny Edmonton. Here's a sentence you'll often read in a Paula Simons column. We can't identify the names because of the Provincial Child, Youth, and Family Enhancement Act. For 20 of her 21 years with the Edmonton Journal, first as a reporter, then as the city's most trusted columnist, she's covered the province's dysfunctional convoluted child services system that can hang parents, foster guardians, and especially the children out to dry in order to protect itself. She's written about foster parents set up to fail. She's written about children left in homes so abusive that one boy shot and killed his father to protect his mother. She's written about other children put into homes where they were starved and beaten and unvisited by frontline workers for 11 months straight. And more importantly, Paula and her colleagues have reported on why Alberta has so many redundant acts and policies that nobody need be burdened by accountability. The Edmonton Journal's work has been such a thorn in the provincial child services side that in the early 2000s, the former conservative government passed a draconian law making it illegal to publish the names or faces of dead children in government care, even preventing grieving families from creating online memorials. 
Well, this made Paula Simons really mad. And as a former journal staffer, Jana Pruden, now at the Globe and Mail, told me, Paula is fantastic when she's mad. There is almost nothing I loved more than when Paula got really riled up about something in the newsroom because I knew there was going to be one hell of a column the next day. Well, late last year, Paula got really mad again. She wrote a column about a nameless four-year-old girl who was horrendously abused in kinship care, ignored by staff and a noble but problematic First Nations child service system that'll keep families together against good judgment sometimes. Then she went out and found that girl's name in her picture, to humanize her, to represent the nearly 800 dead Alberta children who were known to child services in the last 20 years. Her name was Serenity. And she has become a political cause in this province, forcing policy changes under Rachel Notley's government guilty of its own ambivalence. These new standards of reporting and investigating child deaths will save lives. Her columns on Serenity have just received an honorary mention from the Canadian Committee for World Press Freedom. And just a fair warning, in this episode we will be discussing physical and sexual abuse of children. My interview with Paula Simons in a minute. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Peter Leonardin, Michael Ferry, Jordan Simpson, Minka Wolanski, Tom Hayden, David Ayala, Kristen Long, and Julietta McGovern. Julietta, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I appreciate having a regular infusion of critical thought, insightful commentary, and I really wanted one of those imposter t-shirts. And this episode is also brought to you by our newest sponsor, HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. I want to tell you a bit about this sponsor because I started using their service. I love to cook, but the busier I have become, the more I've realized that cooking is broken, especially for busy people. Because especially if you're busy, your kitchen is not filled with staples and produce and everything you need to just whip up a meal and think about what you're going to cook that night. And for me, anyhow, when that's the case, the whole thing becomes like such an onerous undertaking. If I want to cook, I have to think about going to the supermarket after work. Right after work is when the lineups are the biggest at the grocery store. And then you end up buying more than you need. You need a little bit of vegetable for a recipe. You end up buying a bag of it and the stuff, if you're not cooking on the reg, it goes bad and it ends up costing you more than takeout would anyhow. Well, HelloFresh is a service that has solved this whole problem. So instead of going to the grocery store and dealing with all of that, there was a box waiting for me on my porch. I took the box inside, I opened it up. It was an insulated box that had exactly the right amount of ingredient portioned out, but still fresh, unprocessed ingredients. And accompanying these ingredients were incredibly easy to follow and really rather tasty recipes. Step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everybody from novices to seasoned home cooks. It ends up being significantly cheaper than takeout, and you can sign up for whether you want to have meals for two or if you've got kids, they have options for that too. You feel good because you're not wasting food and you're not wasting money and you're eating a lot healthier than you would have been. This is going to change your routine for the better. Why not just try it out? Because you get 50% off of your first box when you go to hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and use the promo code CanadaLand. Finally, this episode is also brought to you by our founding sponsor, FreshBooks, The Solution, Canadian company that has figured out the solution to billing and expense tracking and time tracking and basically just presenting yourself as a small business or entrepreneur to your clients, to the world. Your invoice is your brand. With FreshBooks, your brand looks great. It gets you paid a lot quicker. It saves you a ton of time and it is so stupidly easy to use that you'll wonder why you ever did it any other way. 
I am very fond of the new layout of FreshBooks where I can very quickly see what is coming in. It helps me figure out who's not paying quickest and which clients are the favorable clients that you want to be doing more business with. And it gives me peace of mind knowing what we have coming in in the months ahead. It helps me plan out our spending and I get that all with just a snapshot. So the functionality as they improve the product is going way beyond just sending invoices. And incredibly, as they add more and more functionality, it gets simpler and simpler to look at and to use. This is the solution. This is your accounting department if you can't afford an accounting department. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand and use it for free for 30 days. No credit card required. When you do decide to become a customer, tell them that CanadaLand sent you. You'll be doing this show a favor. Paula Simons, congratulations on your honorable mentions from the National Newspaper Awards and the World Press Freedom. Well, thank you. I feel very honored by my honorable mentions. Tell me about the first time you reported on child services. Well, I guess the very first time that this was driven home to me was just a couple of months after I started working at the Edmonton Journal. So it would have been uh, the winter of 1996. And I wrote about the case of a teenage girl, a young teenager from the Lac La Range area of Saskatchewan. Her name was Becky Charles, and she had frozen to death after she was she was high on gravel, perhaps taken for travel sickness, and uh, she was coming back from Prince Albert to the band, and the driver of the band shuttle bus dropped her on the side of the highway in the freezing cold, it was, you know, minus 25, minus 30, there was a blizzard. And the bus driver called the RCMP detachment and asked them to pick her up. So the RCMP said they went out and looked for her. And I always remember there was this moment in a cartoon, a light bulb would have literally gone off over my head. And I said to the RCMP, well, did you get out of the vehicle to look for her? And it transpired that they had not. They'd just driven up and down the highway and used their headlights, and they didn't want to get out in the cold and the snow. And so they left her by the side of the road, and she froze to death. And that was the first time I had really understood in the marrow of my bones just the tragedy of growing up on a reserve and not being able to expect the kind of care that you would receive if you weren't living on a reserve. And, and I'd come to the journal after having worked at the CBC in Toronto, working on the arts tonight. So I was doing lots of arts journalism, arts coverage. This was a very different kind of journalism. I mean, this really just was like a slap in the face wake up call. And it was not long after that, I guess in 1998, that I wrote about the fatality inquiry into the death of a little boy, a 10 month old from far north Alberta, who'd starved to death because his mother had fed him nothing but watered-down generic coffee whitener, even though there was free formula at the band office. And nobody, not the public health nurse who flew into the reserve, no one in the community had noted the fact that this little boy was starving to death, even though he'd been seen by medical professionals. And what made me angriest of all about that was that when the Fatality Inquiry report came out, they made no recommendations. They said you know, there was nothing they could think of to recommend that could have prevented a death like this. Not a single thing came not, to mind. No, not a... Golly gee. Could, could we think of some things? I could think of some things. And I guess in that moment, I became possessed by, by a, a kind of a fury that has never left me. This has become an obsession for you. It started 20 years ago when resources at the Edmonton Journal were so robust that you were actually covering Saskatchewan as as part of your beat. Yeah. 
Over the years, and, and especially after the infamous Samson Alberta Reserve scandal, where children were being placed in unlicensed homes and there was a swath of them that died in one year, you've really started to get to understand what is wrong with Alberta's child services system. Can you sum up the various problems? Oh, they are so many and various. Well, I mean, it all goes back to the genesis in the residential school system, where you have a legacy of families who were very ill-equipped to care for their own children, combined with a very paternalistic governmental system that didn't help them and was quite keen to snatch them away in the 1960s. So by the time you get to when I'm writing about things, we have a colossal mess. You've got generations of family dysfunction. You've got generations of substance abuse. You've got a system whose default setting isn't to support families proactively, but to take kids out. Plus, you've got a system where almost... Across Alberta, 70% of the kids who are in care are First Nations or, or Métis. And in Edmonton, that's, that's even higher. But then there's this issue of kinship care, which you've called politically fashionable, but you see a problem in it as well. Tell me about that. Well, again, kinship care is one of those things that sounds fantastic on paper. And whether you're First Nations or not, the idea is that if you take a kid from their birth family, that you should try to keep them with extended family members that they know, or even if they've never met them, that they'll be sort of part of the same cultural ecosystem. So whether your foster kid is First Nations or Somali or Dutch, I mean, it makes perfect sense that you'd want to disrupt them the least amount possible and keep them with family. The problem is that we relax the standards for who can be a kinship care foster placement. So if you're a foster parent, Frankly, it's not like we did the most fabulous job of screening foster parents either, but there are higher standards. There is more training required. There are deeper background checks. If you want to place kids with family, sometimes the system is set up so that it privileges the family relationship over the safety of the child. And I've covered far too many cases where kids were placed with family members based on the assumption that family is best without consideration of the fact that if the family is dysfunctional, it's going to be dysfunctional through various iterations. I think in the in the court of public opinion, people usually come down on the guardians and the parents first. What I've noticed in your reporting is that you often humanize them um, just as much as you do the children. Tell me why you do that. Well, you know, even as I'm talking to you, when I go back and look at the stuff that I wrote in 96, 97, 98, 99, 2000, I am now wise enough to see with hindsight that I fell into a trap that I think a lot of well-meaning white liberal journalists do of having a bit of a white savior complex, you know, that it was somehow my job to save these children from their bad First Nations families and bad First Nations communities. And I rue now some of the things that I wrote in the past, I read them and I wince because I think I was young and stupid and I didn't understand the way I, I try to now, the long-term impact of residential schools and the 60s scoop and all those other things on First Nations parents of today. So I've really tried in the latter part of writing about this to give people a better, fairer picture of what some of these people have gone through. Because, you know, are there psychopaths and sociopaths out there who get their jollies by torturing children? Yes, sadly, there are. But many, many, many of the cases that I've covered of First Nations kids, it's much more about neglect 
and negligence and parents wrestling with their own demons. And in in the case of, of some of these situations, of people being completely overwhelmed. And even in the cases where the, the person who's committed the bad act isn't First Nations, there was another case in Edmonton where a little boy named uh, Kalijah Potts was placed in a foster home with a foster mom. Her name was Lily Choi. She was a registered nurse. She was a professor of nursing. Uh, she had kids of her own. She looked like a perfect foster parent. I mean, why wouldn't you think somebody with her background would be fantastic at this job. But there were problems when she was in training that the trainers noticed but didn't push. And then she got loaded up with way more foster kids than she was licensed to have. Way more, like a crazy amount, breaking all their own rules for how many people a brand new foster mom with kids of her own should be I believe the at. number was six. Yeah, it, I mean, it was just bananas. And they were, she wasn't supposed to have little ones. She was only supposed to have older kids. I mean, they broke every rule because they were so desperately short of foster homes. So they overloaded her home and then she brought in a nanny to help her care for them. It just went completely sideways. And she ended up fracturing that little boy's skull. I mean, she did a terrible thing. And there aren't any excuses for her about legacies of child welfare and et cetera. She just snapped, but, you know. But she was set up to fail. She was totally set up to fail. And, you know, I mean, she she came forward with the best of intentions to foster kids in need. And in the end, not only did she take this little boy's life, but she destroyed her own life and the life of her own children. And it's a, it's an unspeakable tragedy from start to finish. But she's culpable. Absolutely. I don't excuse what she did. But how can we look away from the fact that she was sabotaged from the very beginning by the structure that was supposed to be helping her and the kids in her care. So you've you've covered a lot of the problematic issues with placing children or not placing children, but there's another problem too. This legislation, this law, which has since changed, but it said that you absolutely cannot publish the names and faces of children known to child services who've died. The minister said that it was about protecting grieving families, a matter of privacy. Did you buy that? No, not for one split second have I ever bought that. Tell us about this legislation, uh, how it started. At the beginning of my career with the journal, I could name these kids. I mean, this is why I can remember their names. And then uh, in the in the mid-2000s, the government brought in an amendment to the Child Youth and Family Enhancement Act. I hate the name. It's so danged Orwellian, the Enhancement Act. And the idea was that you could not identify in any way, not just you couldn't name them or show their pictures, but you couldn't put any identifying information about any child who had ever come to the attention of the Director of Children's Services. And it really stymied our ability to report. What we discovered a few years ago when I worked with my colleagues, Karen Cleese and Darcy Henton, was that the government had engaged in a systemic pattern of covering up deaths of children in care. I mean, what happened was I'd been writing these stories for years and years and years. And Karen Cleese, who was at that time new to the Indigenous Affairs beat, came to me and said, she wanted to FOIP to see how many children had died in care. And I said, well, good luck with that, because I am a little ADHD and I have the attention span of a magpie. But Karen was like a pit bull and she wouldn't let go. And she spent years and years and years fighting to get this information. And it turned out that the government had not only not been publishing the names of the people who died, 
They'd been covering it up. They had been tabling annual reports in the legislature that were lies. I'm going to use the word for it. They had not even told the ministers of the crown responsible for the department how many children were dying. I mean, they, they, would, they would publish annual reports and say, well, this many children died in care this year, this many children died in care. And I was always sufficiently perturbed by that. And it turned out that they had been underreporting by the hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of deaths that were not. The official tally between 1999 and 2013 was, I believe, 745. That number came out because Karen Cleese fought like tigers. And not, not just Karen Cleese, but of course, the get, Edmonton Journal. It was a yeah. four-year legal battle. Yeah, it was the Edmonton Journal from the beginning, and then the Calgary Herald joined us to sort of help us. Because when, when the death records started to come back, it was overwhelming. We had boxes and boxes and boxes, and we gave Karen her own office, and she covered the walls with the pictures that we could find of the kids. But, you know, many of those kids, we were never able to figure out who they were because they didn't give us, in response to that series, Fatal Care, which did win a National Newspaper Award for investigative journalism a couple of years ago, the government said, okay, well, now you can print the names of children who died, but you can't identify if they have surviving siblings. You can't print anything that would identify the siblings. And also, we're not going to tell you the names of the people who died. So you have to figure it out. So we know that more than 700 kids died, but we can't put names and faces to all of those deaths, only the ones where there was some kind of other news story or fatality inquiry. And and this is the other lie. We'd been told for years that they did public fatality inquiries into the deaths of every child who died in care. And it turned out that was never true. Some of those deaths, let me let me say, were natural and unpreventable. Sometimes kids come into foster care because they have a fatal disease and that's the whole reason they're in care is because their parents can't look after them. And sometimes children just do die of childhood leukemia, of accidents that are not the result of gross negligence, but just because sometimes that happens in life. So I don't want to imply that all 750 of those kids died wrongful deaths, but we need to track even the natural ones. I mean, how else do you see if you've got a disproportionate number of kids dying of a genetic disease that we could be screening for or a disproportionate number of kids dying of sudden infant death syndrome because we're not using good sleep hygiene? That data is important, even if you're not trying to assign culpability. And the reports that are available to you, they remain shrouded in mystery. Tell me how you found Little Serenity. Tell me about her case. I just get so angry. I'm sort of perpetually angry. I'm not really an angry person. I'm just, you know, but I don't know that I've done a single story that has made me angrier than this one. What happened was in November, Alberta's child and youth advocate, Del Graff, issued his own report into the death of this little girl. By the terms of his legislation, he's not allowed to publish any identifying information. His report didn't say when she died. It didn't say where she died. It didn't say where she'd lived. It provided no identifying information at all. It provided a few very bleak facts that she'd had a fractured skull. And in the footnotes, it noted that her weight at death had been nine kilograms. Turned out later that was a mistake. Her weight at death had actually been eight kilograms. She was four years old. She was four and a half. Yeah. That is, That's about the weight of a nine-month-old. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't even find that on a, a growth chart for kids of that age. I mean, there, there is no percentile that measures that. But that information wasn't highlighted in the report. It was sort of in the, in the footnotes. And this was a kinship care placement. So she'd been removed 
from a white foster home where she was thriving and placed in a kinship care placement on a reserve where, in fact, she'd never lived. Her mother hadn't grown up on reserve. So they, they took this kid out of a home where she was really thriving and placed her in a kinship care placement where she died. Did you know that from the report or is that something yes, that you no, had to go no, and investigate No, I, I, I knew that from the report. And and so Graf made recommendations that kinship care homes should be better supervised and screened because Graf noted in his report that the kinship care givers had not been properly trained. They'd refused to go through the training, uh, which wasn't mandatory, but is recommended. So they wouldn't go through the training, that there hadn't been appropriate background checks done. And Graf also noted, and this was very distressing, that a kinship care placement should usually last a year or two before the family is given permanent guardianship. In this case, the family was given permanent guardianship after only four or five months, and then child services closed the file and never went back to check on those kids, Serenity and her two older siblings, half siblings. Now you didn't know her name was Serenity. I didn't tell know me her what name. happened when tell me what happened after you wrote the story that you could with the facts that you had. So I wrote a story as eloquently as I could summon. And it was, you know, it was a daily news story. This isn't something I spent weeks investigating. Graf's report came out in the morning and I wrote my column and had it online that afternoon and talked about how there was still so much mystery, the facts that we knew were terrible, but what are the facts we don't know? And I said in in the story, because Graf had said this in the report, that the mother had a substance abuse problem. And so I said that this child had been failed by everyone, by her parents, by the child welfare system, blah, 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 blah. So I put the story on my journal Facebook page, and this is this is really an anecdote about how Facebook works. There's huge investment in Facebook in First Nations communities, at least in Alberta, where I do the bulk of my work. And I have a lot of people in First Nations communities who are followers of my work on Facebook. So I, I posted this column, and somebody shared it with somebody else who posted on my wall and said, you've been really unfair to the mother here. I know the mother, she's a cousin of mine, and you don't have all the facts. And I very quickly wrote to the woman, please tell me, you know, what, what is your relationship? Well, it turned out that she was a cousin to the birth mom who has subsequently regained custody of her older children, moved to a different part of Canada, which I can't identify, and has, as the cliche goes, turned her life around, got completely sober, finished post-secondary education, has a fiancé, has a good job, and is getting on with her life as best she's able. But via Facebook, I was able to connect with her. And so we had a long Facebook conversation back and forth. And she said to me, and, and this stunned me, she said, well, I can send you her medical records. So the next morning, she, you know, she went to the office depot and she found a fax machine and she faxed me Serenity's medical records. And, you know, I've covered a lot of trials. I've covered a lot of horrible situations. This was like something out of a horror movie. That little girl, the medical records showed that when she arrived in hospital, she was grotesquely malnourished. She had a fractured skull and she arrived in a state of profound hypothermia. And her body was covered with bruises, with broken bones that had been broken, you know, over time and then healed without treatment. She had deep uh, vaginal bruising, deep anal bruising, and her, her hymen was gone. So clear evidences of sexual assault, clear evidences of long-term physical assault on top of the fractured skull. And I mean, she was malnourished to the point 
of death and hypothermia, which someone suggested to me, a medical expert off the record, may have been caused by sleeping in the basement without blankets. Why do you think that information was missing from the official report? Well, I asked the Office of the, of the uh, Child and Youth Advocate, wouldn't that have been useful information to put in your report? And that's when things got even weirder. They told me that they hadn't been able to include any of that information because they only work off the official reports of the medical examiner. And the medical examiner had never completed the autopsy report into this girl's death. She had died, and it took almost two years before the medical examiner's office in Alberta, which at that time was grotesquely understaffed and having a leadership crisis, they just hadn't done the autopsy for two years. You know, they'd examined her body, but they'd never finished the paperwork. And as a result, Del Graf, the child and youth advocate, didn't have access to the paperwork, and neither did the RCMP. And so, two years after her death, there had been no criminal charges laid at all. You know, not for the abuse of serenity and not for the for the documented abuse of her two surviving siblings who had also been beaten and malnourished. When you went to Human Services for comment, they (laughs) got back to you very last minute. I think it was a Wednesday at 5 p.m. And the Human Services Minister, Irfan Sabir, told you that there was an unfortunate error in the handling of Serenity's critical internal review. What was that unfortunate error? This was not the first time I'd contacted them about this file. So this was, I think, the fourth piece you're referencing is about the fourth fourth or fifth piece I'd written about her case. And at that point, I was just trying to sort of like do a deeper dive. And, and the minister called me late that afternoon and said, ah, yeah, so we've, we've had this unfortunate error. The unfortunate error was that they had done their own internal case review of this kinship care placement and this family, and they had never turned it over to the RCMP. Never. This is more than two years after she died. And when did they turn it over? This was the thing that shocked me. They didn't turn it over until after I started writing my stories. And even then, it took weeks after I'd first broken this story in November for them to finally get the documentation to the RCMP. So, you know, I don't know at whom I'm more angry, at Children's Services for not giving this vital documentation of evidence to the RCMP, or the RCMP, who never apparently asked for it, even though they know that that is always what has happened in cases of deaths of children in care, there's an internal case review. Why didn't the RCMP take its own initiative after two years to ask for that documentation? Omar, I, I'm sitting in this little studio in Toronto and I'm vibrating with fury uh, because I don't understand. I mean, it is possible that the Crown will never be able to convict anybody of second degree or first degree murder in the death of this little girl because so much time has gone by and witness statements were not taken and the proper investigation was not done in the moment. But surely to God, the evidences are clear for manslaughter or criminal neglect or failing to provide the necessaries of life. And the evidences are are abundantly clear that this child was sexually assaulted. And part of the problem is that she was medevaced to the Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton, which is an absolutely outstanding pediatric care facility. And that's where she died, where that's where she was removed from life support. And initially, the Edmonton Police Service did interviews with the surviving older siblings, who weren't very old, but who were old enough to be witnesses to a certain extent. But 
because she was not from Edmonton, she was from a rural reserve, the Edmonton Police Service turned the file over to the RCMP. And I don't know where the ball was dropped. I mean, there were so many balls dropped. It's like an entire case of ping pong balls fell from the sky. I find it unfathomable that nobody is apparently ever going to be held accountable for for what happened to this little girl. You described what she looked like about the time that she went to the Stollery Children's Hospital, but you were able to get an older photo of Serenity from before she was placed in this kinship care home. What did she look like? This was one of the great gifts to me as a journalist is that both Serenity's mom and the mother's cousin were able to share photographs with me. So I, I think the picture that's the most heartbreaking is the one of Serenity at the age of about three and a half. She is riding a tricycle in a kitchen, as kids do. And she's got the biggest, most mischievous grin on her face. I mean, if you saw the picture, you'd say, here comes trouble. She's dirty and stocky and still has her baby fat on her and is just, it's the biggest grin, like she's coming to get you. And you just look at that picture and she is so filled with joy and so filled with energy and so filled with life and the intelligence out of her eyes. I mean, you think this is a kid who's going to go someplace. This is not a victim. This is a child who is absolutely filled with the joy of living. And then I have a picture that her mother's cousin took of her. The mother's cousin was able to snatch a brief visit with her. And this is a picture taken five or six months before she died, where her arms are skeletally thin, her face is bruised, and just the light has gone out in her eyes. She looks for all the world like the kind of picture you see of of famine victims in the Horn of Africa. There is no life left in her. Then there are the pictures that the, the mother shared with me just a couple of weeks ago of Serenity in the hospital on life support. And I don't know which is more gut-wrenching, to look at the pictures of her wasted body with all the tubes coming out of it, covered in bruises, and to contrast that to the picture of her before she was placed in that kinship care home. And in the wake of my stories, I was able to speak with both the foster mother who was looking after Serenity, the white foster mom, and with the white foster family who were looking after the two older half-siblings. And they both told me, that Serenity's mom was trying so hard that she'd gotten clean and sober, that she had weekly visits with the kids, that the kids would go to her place for sleepovers. The mom was doing really well, and they really felt, both the White Foster families were working closely with the mother, and they really felt that a reunification was going to happen soon. And then welfare workers snatched those kids from those white foster families and from being on track to be reunited with their mother, placed them with distant relatives of the mother over the mother's objections. The mother said, I don't want my kids there. They're not being looked after properly. The mother and other people raised alarms about the abuse and there was never any follow-up. So that's the thing that makes this so heartbreaking is that there's an alternate timeline in which Serenity's mom gets the kids back And they live happily ever after, or at least, you know, with the capacity to overcome their challenges. And instead, the child welfare system derailed what could have been the happy outcome and and put these three kids into hell for no reason. In the subsequent columns that you wrote, you repeat this line. Her name was Serenity. Her name was Serenity. How did identifying her, seeing her change the story? I can't begin to describe the difference it had in the emotional impact. Because my first piece 
where I didn't know her name or anything. I mean, it, it got, you know, it got pretty good response from readers, but it was, to be blunt, very similar to stories I've been telling for years. When I could name her, at least her first name, I mean, I do know her surname, but we've never used it out of deference to the privacy of the surviving siblings. But when I could tell you her first name and show people those photographs, she became a real person. She became a child that people could identify with. And I have never had, I mean, in the 20 some years I've been writing these stories, I have never had a public response like I had to this story. I mean, it was extraordinary on Twitter, on Facebook, in my email box. I mean, people wrote to me, you know, I can't stop crying. I mean, there was this huge public backlash and this demand that the government do something. And that would never have happened if I hadn't been able to make her a person. And if I hadn't, frankly, you know, been able to to find her mother via Facebook, I mean, how else would I ever have found her mother? I didn't know her mother's name. I didn't know where her mother lived. I didn't know where her mother had been, you know, had been raised. I would have had no way of tracking her except that Someone two removes from the mother saw me posting this on Facebook. You've called Notley's NDP government every bit as defensive, obdurate, and heartless as the conservative government before them. After 40 years in power, I think it had become apparent all too often that the former government was sometimes more interested in holding power and deflecting accountability than actually improving the lives of people in the child care system. But did you really expect things to change, to be different under Notley? I did. I really did. Because when Rachel Notley was the child welfare critic for the NDP, she was absolutely passionate and eloquent on this file. So yes, I was a little naive about that. You know, the problem is now that the NDP are in power, they have inherited precisely the same bureaucracy that the conservatives created. So the conservatives had eliminated the position of a child welfare ministry and created this giant super ministry of human services. And when the Notley government came to power, they didn't change that. They didn't assign somebody responsibility for the children's services file per se. Not only that, but there was no shakeup in the bureaucracy. So you had the same deputy ministers. You had exactly the same, exactly the same people running the child welfare system that you had before. And you had a weak minister who didn't shake things up, who didn't have the self-confidence to say, you know, maybe there are some problems here. Because let's remember that this child died when the conservatives were in power. This child didn't die on Rachel Notley's watch. But this cover-up continued And when I exposed it, I'll never understand to my dying day why the NDP government didn't stand up and say, you're right, this is a terrible thing. How did the previous government let this happen? We're going to fix it. Instead, they dug in and defended the conservatives. It is to me unfathomable. So, you know, in the wake of all of this, the government has, you know, pledged to do better. And they've created a new Ministry of Children's Services with a very good minister in Daniel Larravee, who was the... uh, former minister of municipal affairs who was responsible for response to the Fort McMurray wildfire. She's a very respected, very competent minister. And they've struck this special all-party panel. This is the child death review panel. Yeah, to look at, you know, why why are we not properly reviewing the deaths of children in care? What are the changes that are being made to prevent further deaths? There haven't been any changes made. 
this is an all-party panel. So is, has any good come of this panel so no, far? No, I mean, not yet. I mean, and I don't want to be cynical about it because the panel, you know, is near the beginning of its work. So it's an all-party panel. They've had many, 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 many long, long, long meetings. And they've come up with, you know, a consensus set of principles it's very nice political theater, and maybe in a year something valuable will come of it. But I've not seen any evidence that there's been any change in policy or practice of any kind. And in fact, the NDP have reiterated their support for kinship care because that is the politically correct thing to say. And of course, the NDP, not to be crass about this, but have strong ties to the labor movement and to social workers who are members of unions. That said, lots of the people who work for these child welfare agencies are non-unionized and are paid very little. And I haven't yet seen any rhetoric or body language from the NDP government that suggests that they are interested in the kind of wholesale systemic change to really shake up the system in a way that puts kids first. Well, I know that if you do see it, I'll read about it in your column because (laughs) what I admire about you, Paula, is that you're a reporting columnist. You're, you're no slouch. So many columnists, and I've been guilty of this myself, we, we read a bunch of other people's work and then we just form an opinion off of that. But I often see you on the scene reporting and you've got a skill for interviewing and debating that you put to work with your sources. You push them respectfully. You call them on their bullshit as you did Minister Sabir but somehow never getting them to the point where they're going to hang up on you. Sometimes people hang up on me. but <laughs> Maybe sometimes they hang up on you. But you work hard on your columns, and you must have to make an extra effort now that you're in a newsroom that is a shadow of its former self when you started there in 1996, when your reporting on human services and child services started. It is absolutely true that we are a much smaller newsroom, but, you know, it's sort of, it's, it's like homeopathy, right? The more you dilute us, the stronger we get. I'm really blessed to work with an extraordinary team of people at the journal. And when I was working on the Serenity stories, I wasn't doing it in a vacuum. You know, my colleague, Emma Graney, who is our lead reporter at the legislature, did brilliant political follow-up work. My colleague, Sarah O'Donnell, who was at that time our, our lead editorial writer and editor of our editorial page, did some beautiful work on the editorial page. At one point, I think half the newsroom was working on follows to Serenity, which was great because it freed me up from doing the day-to-day follows and let me do some more deep dives into what had been gone gone wrong in the medical examiner's office. And I do want to say, although I haven't seen changes to children's services, in the wake of the Serenity stories, there were significant changes in the medical examiner's office. They have Mm. staffed up an office that was grotesquely understaffed. They have diverted more budget money to the medical examiner's office. That's not just because of the Serenity reporting. That's also because of the opioid crisis. But I think that the reporting on Serenity and the reporting on all of the problems in the medical examiner's office helped to provide the government with the the political motivation and cover to put resources there where they're desperately needed as well. I mean, I have to imagine, though, that it is more difficult to to get to this information. I mean, you use the metaphor of homeopathy, but uh, (laughs) homeopathy is a pseudoscience. Yes. Yes, it is. Sorry. Yes. Let let me be clear. I do not believe in homeopathy. That was a joke. Uh, But for for all you all you people, Canada land listeners, it is really hard. I mean, I mentioned uh, Karen Cleese and Darcy Henton, who were the backbone of the Fatal Care series. They've 
both left journalism. It is not easy, but sometimes diamonds form under pressure. And I'm really blessed to have editors who support me. And frankly, the nice thing about being in my early, very early 50s, so early 50s, and having covered these files for so long is that things don't take me as long as they used to because <laughs> I know who to ask and I know where to go. And and people are sometimes willing to speak to me because they know my name and they know the work I've done on these files in the past. The Serenity stories were primarily done as daily breaking news stories. I mean, a couple of them I took two days to write instead of one. But you're right. I mean, I do a lot of my own original reporting. I don't have the luxury of having a whole, you know, 20 people writing stories and then I get to just do the follow up. So, yeah, I, I like to be breaking news. I like to be doing my own original investigative research. But over the years, I mean, stories come to me. I wrote a piece a couple of years ago about a man in his mid-30s named Kane Black who had grown up in the child welfare system. His mother had murdered his sister in front of his eyes when he was young. He was taken into care. He was sexually abused in foster care. He was physically abused in his white adoptive family. And he came to me because he'd foiped his own child welfare records. And he had boxes and boxes. You know, so all of the things he told me I didn't just have to take his word for it. He had documentary evidence of everything that had happened to him. And I worked with him for months and was able to do a very long form feature about his life in the child welfare system, how he'd ended up as a child prostitute, how the government knew he was a child prostitute and didn't really do anything about it. And, you know, he came to me because he'd seen the other work I'd done on child welfare files. And his was a chance for me to tell this story of the kid who didn't die but who lived all through the system and the scars that the system had left upon him. So, you know, people said to me, oh, my God, how did you get that story? And the answer is, I was sitting at my desk one day when he phoned. So, you know, sometimes th these things pay dividends. The work is resource intensive. Has anyone ever told you to stop? Well, years ago, I had an editor. He wasn't a bad egg. He had a, he had a pockish sense of humor. And, and he said to me, when are you going to stop writing about dead Aboriginal children? And I said, well, when they stop dying. That's when. That's when. I want people to understand what an opportunity we're wasting, what a resource we're throwing away. I mean, these are young people in whom we should be investing our energy and our money because let's be really pragmatic about it. Every time a First Nations kid gets a shitty childhood, can I say shitty on Canada land? You sure can. I'll say All it right. with you. It's a shitty childhood. Every time a First Nations kid gets a shitty childhood and they don't get, you know, cared for and loved and educated and fed is a kid who's going to grow up to cost you, the Canadian taxpayer, money because they're going to end up in the justice system, in the criminal justice system. They're going to end up in the welfare system. They're going to end up costing the healthcare system a huge amount of money. It would be fiscally prudent to invest money energy, resources in bringing up a generation of First Nations kids who are strong and resilient and smart and vibrant and able to take their equal place 
as citizens of this country. Instead, you know, we spend all this time apologizing for residential schools. God knows we should. But while we're busy flagellating ourselves for the things that our ancestors did, how about looking at what we're doing right now? What, you know, what are my grandchildren going to be apologizing for that we are effing up right now? That is my message to people. I don't want to be a white savior with a white savior complex because it makes me sound patronizing and racist. I do want us to wake up and say that if we let another generation go by without seizing this moment to act, we're going to be paying for the consequences of our callousness and our disinterest for a long, long time to come. Paula Simons, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Omar. That's your Alberta Land Show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Omar Moalem. You can email me at omar at canadalandshow.com. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. We are on Twitter at canadaland and follow me at omar underscore aok. The Imposter drops a brand new episode this Wednesday and Jesse will be back Thursday for shortcuts. This episode of Canada Land was produced by Russell Gregg. Special thanks to Samantha Power and the great folks at CJSR FM 88 Radio in Edmonton. They generously let us use their studios. And you can catch Canada Land on CJSR every Thursday at 11 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. If you like what we do, please support us. In France, in the 13th century, a teenager ascends the throne. He seems calm, collected, and as it happens, drop-dead gorgeous. But looks can be deceiving, and no one is ready for the death, destruction, and chaos that lie ahead. Step inside the reign of one of the Middle Ages' most cold-blooded rulers on This Is History presents The Iron King. Available wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.